We're going to continue studying uh, the book of Matthew today. And my friend Marcus, Marcus Patello, maybe you've had a chance to hear him share before. Uh, he and I were, were sitting down and studying through Matthew together and kind of plotting out uh, this sermon series. And he was helping me, giving me some insights and tips. And uh, I, we were talking about, I, I said, are there any of these messages that you'd be interested in, in taking over as we talk about the kingdom of God and the book of Matthew? And he said, I would love to tackle the genealogy. And I said, that's fantastic. I'd love to let you tackle the genealogy. <laughs> and so I hope you're encouraged today. He's got some, some, uh, some neat insights to be able to share that I hope will challenge and, and bless your heart today. Good morning. Excited to be spending some time with you in God's Word this morning. Uh, if you were here with us last week when we kicked off this Kingdom series, uh, Pastor Jeremiah gave a message out of Matthew 6 and Matthew 7. Uh, Seek first the Kingdom of God, and then the calling of Matthew, uh, the person who was the author of this Gospel of Matthew. And I think it's just so essential for us as we take this nice long look into uh, the kingdom vision that Christ offers, that we really understand the context of what this Gospel of Matthew is about. Because each of the Gospel accounts do serve uh, a different purpose. Now, don't get me wrong, they all cover Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his mission, and his ministry, but they have different audiences in mind for uh, these different Gospels that we find. Uh, and the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so as we continue to consider the context of what Jesus is talking about and Matthew's aim is, I think it's important just to uh, crank out these four Gospels and what purpose they serve. Uh, so the Gospel of John was written to a newly believing Christian audience. As people came to faith, uh, Jesus was something that they were still trying to understand for themselves. They didn't have the Bible yet. And so John wrote his gospel account for the Church of New Believers. It's kind of like the first Bible study of Jesus. Then we can look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor who wanted to take a careful historical analysis to Jesus and to the claims that he had. So he's kind of like our first textbook of Jesus. Then we get to the Gospel of Mark, and this is the earliest uh, gospel that we can find. Um, it's kind of like the first evangelistic book about Jesus, because there's this frequent theme of, this is who Jesus claimed to be, but who do you say that Jesus is? And then this brings us to Matthew, where we'll be spending the next handful of weeks together. Matthew's gospel was written to a first century Jewish audience, and it was kind of like the first, uh, if you're familiar with the phrase apologetic, the first apologetic book. Now apologetic just means making a reasonable argument or a case for this claim. So when Matthew wrote this, he was examining what Jesus claimed to be and making an argument of why it's legitimate to his Jewish audience. Maybe you've heard of the books more than a carpenter or A Case for Faith, or Case for Christ, or you watched a movie called God's Not Dead. Matthew's kind of like the first one of those. And what's interesting is that Matthew writes it, and the first thing he starts with is this genealogy, which will be in this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So as you're turning there, I want us to consider that names serve a purpose. Uh, if you were to go where I grew up and heard the last name Handrich, 
you're likely going to think of a basketball or a soccer player, because Hendrich family frequently has good basketball and soccer players. Or if you were to hear the last name Fox, you're going to think of football. Sometimes names serve for honorable reasons. Sometimes names are known for uh, less honorable reasons in the community. Now, being new to mid-Michigan, um, I don't know the uh, last names quite like you all will. So for me, I asked around on who are some families that uh, have kind of been the backbone of Clare County. They have, uh, they're known well, they have uh, good reputations, good character, good honor. And I got uh, these names, Rogers, Starks, and Whitbecks. Now for me as an outsider, that doesn't communicate much to me. But for some of you who have been born and raised in this community, there's probably a lot more of a message behind those last names than there is for me. So this is where we'll jump into Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and consider what these names could mean in the Gospel of Matthew. So this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashan. Nashan was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Now, you might be bored already because of me walking through this list of names. But I want to point out, though, that skipping names can actually be a way that we can grieve the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, being a Christian, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible and through its divine way had uh, Matthew write what was important to have in this gospel account. And so any time that we come to a passage that we think we can't get anything from this, or this is outdated, or this is useless to me, we're passively saying that the Holy Spirit has wasted ink by including this in the Bible. So let's explore these names together. Uh, let's consider which names can elicit honor and which names can elicit shame. So first, we'll look at honor. We have Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jewish faith. Uh, with the book of Matthew being to a primarily Jewish audience, this is quite the opening statement to consider. This would kind of be similar to uh, being British and saying you're a direct descendant of the queen. Second, we have Jacob. Jacob is the father to the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes spoken about all throughout Old Testament history started from Jacob. Third, we have Judah. Judah is the father of the faithful tribe of Israel. Uh, generations later, it's the tribe of Judah that remains faithful when Israel falls away and starts worshiping other gods. Fourth, we could look at David. David's the king that all of Israel adores. He is respected, he's revered, he's the picture of the noble king that everyone loves. And then fifth, we have Solomon. 
the wisest and most powerful king ever known to Israel. He's viewed fondly, but not like David. David is more of a like noble fondly. Solomon is viewed for his wisdom. So here are some names that are honorable. The Jewish audience would hear these names and be interested in hearing this. But Matthew doesn't only record these names. Let's consider some of the shameful names that made the cut. We have Perez, whose mother was Tamar. Now, <clears throat> Tamar tricked Judah into sleeping with her, which then impregnated her to have twins. But here's the thing, though. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. So Perez's father is also his grandfather. Uh, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was a baby whose mother was a pagan prostitute. We have Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Ruth is just a poor peasant immigrant woman from no prestigious family. Fourth is Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. It's not so much that Solomon's name would cause a stir here, it's a, the including of Bathsheba's. You might remember Bathsheba as the woman that, when David looked out his window, he saw her bathing, and then ordered his temple guards to bring her to his uh, room so that he could sleep with her. He ended up impregnating her, and then as a cover-up, sent her husband to the front lines in battle and told the army to step away in battle so that Uriah would be killed and cover up what David had done wrong. Ray Boehm. Uh, when your grandfather is the king everyone loves and adores, and your father is the wisest king in history, it doesn't look good when you can't keep the country from civil war and eventually splitting into two. And then Abijah. Everyone loved David, respected Solomon. Rehoboam had a civil war happen, but when Abijah takes the throne, he is crooked, he's corrupt, and he's evil. So we have some winners in the family history, and we have some not-so-winners in the family history. As Matthew is writing this, the original audience would have had some really conflicting feelings about this. Because on the one hand, Jesus clearly has the credentials needed to be the Messiah. But then on the other hand, there's a sense of, but Matthew, did you need to include those people too? What can we take away from this? I think what we can take away from this is similar to one of the things that the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate to the first century Jewish audience. That is, that our idea of a Savior of the world looks nothing like the actual Savior of the world. So let's think about what our Saviors of the world look like. By the end of this year, the two most recent defining eras of heroes are going to come to a close the Avengers series, and the new Star Wars trilogy. Now, many of these heroes between these uh, narratives have a chosen lineage about them. Uh, they're all powerful. They all can overthrow their villains, whether it's their skill in combat or their wit and intelligence. Maybe it's their supporting sidekick or another hero that comes along to help them. And they have this other theme of they continue to rise in power and esteem and it might not mean that everyone likes them, but there's this like growing sense of we need them. Some of them are uh, big shots from the beginning. Others start out as nobodies, like say Ray from Star Wars or Spider-Man from the Marvel Universe. But 
all of them grow in becoming influential, important, needed people. So let me ask you, what makes a good hero? In fact, this morning, I actually want us to discuss this together. So if you're sitting with someone you know or someone you don't know, whether it be a spouse or a total stranger, we're just going to take a minute or two, and I want you to discuss what makes a good hero. So turn to each other, discuss, and then I'll bring our attention back in just a minute or so. back together after that. Hearing a couple different murmurings going on. I heard some people talking about characteristics, some talking about superpowers, uh, some talking about their clothing. So there's a lot of different areas that we can cover when it comes to a hero. But when I think of what makes a good hero, uh, I came up with a list of eight things that I'm confident is what is was shared out here. Maybe there were some missing ones, but I think as I consider all of the Lord of the Rings and Avengers and Star Wars and Gladiators and all these movies, these are the things that you can rely on. Uh, so number one, they're good. They have an intrinsic desire to do the right thing. The second is that they're just. They don't take people's suffering lightly. The third is they're faithful. They'll show up just in the nick of time to save people. Fourth, they're righteous. They're not tempted by evil or corrupted by it. Fifth is they're intelligent. They can use their brains to uh, think ahead and act accordingly when plans go south. Uh, sixth, they're powerful. They're not overthrown easily. Seventh, they're an overcomer. There's this element of they've went up against the odds and they've overcome and come out on top against their adversary. And then eighth, they're selfless. They'll stand in the face of evil uh, for the sake of the people they love. Now, all of these things are good things. Uh, I have no hidden gotcha to why these things shouldn't be on the list. But I think there's a missing ingredient here that gives us a different product. Let's consider baking a cake. Now, I know a couple weeks ago I used coffee for an illustration, and now I'm using cake, so you're quickly learning uh, the weight of my heart here. Um, but with making a cake, let's say the hero's goodness is the eggs. It's the binding ingredient. Let's say their faithfulness is like the sugar. It makes it sweet. Maybe the hero's power is like the butter or the oil that you will use. Maybe their desire to be just is like the icing. But if you were to take all of these things and mix them all together and then put them in an oven, you're not going to get a cake. 
I mean, they're all essential ingredients of a cake, but at the end of the day, you don't get the actual cake. Does anyone know what's missing from the cake? Flour. Flowers are missing ingredient. And if you negate it, you'll get something like a cake, but it is not, in fact, a cake. Likewise, if we miss this key ingredient of Jesus, you can mix all of these things that you've listed, and you'll come up with a hero, but at the end of the day, your hero will never be Jesus. Why? What's this missing ingredient that we need? Well, before I answer that, let me paint an idea for you of this missing ingredient. We're going to kind of march through some descriptions of what I think is different between our hero or our Messiah. Our, if we could build our own hero or create our own Messiah, here's the things that I think would be different. If we could build our own Messiah, he would be laid in a cradle in a mansion or castle, not in a stranger's food trough or animal's feed. He would be celebrated and recognized by the important people of society, not identified with the marginalized. He would be beautiful and charming to the eye, not meek and lowly looking. He would have a home or a fortified headquarters, a castle maybe, but not be homeless without a place to lay his head. He would have a family of good-hearted people, not be from a family line of murderers, liars, racists, sexual predators, and corruption. He'd single-handedly vanquish his enemies and not be tortured and die by them. He would rebuke or overthrow those that you disagree with or hurt you, not invite them over for dinner and wash their feet. His death would be marked by being honored with a memorial or a statue, not being buried in another man's grave. When resurrected from the dead, he would be beautiful and without blemish, not bearing the scars from his enemies. His followers would receive power and honor and would not be outcast, tortured to death. He would physically be near you or me, not ascended to heaven so that he can spiritually be with all. If you or I built our own Savior, he would not look like, act like, or even be like Jesus. Therein lies the problem with the human heart. We wanted a man of victory, not a man of sorrows. And a man of sorrows is the flower that gives us our cake. The first century Jewish Christians and the 21st century Christians today still try to put mascara or makeup over this. They'll tell people, oh, come and see our Savior. But Matthew chapter 1 starts out the language of the entire New Testament by saying, come see the Savior, and he's nothing like we ever would have expected. So let me share that partial Jesuses, or Jesuses that are only winners, or imaginary Jesuses are deadly. Any Jesus that is not the real Jesus leads to a disaster. The medieval crusaders, the American slave owners, the Nazis, all had their own partial imaginary Jesus. And that imaginary Jesus justified killing and enslaving millions of people. Any addition to Jesus or any reduction from him will lead to chaos and death. You need the real deal, not your ideal Jesus. 
There's another place that this problem with the human heart comes up for us, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read verses 27 and 31 together. But before we read this, I want to acknowledge we might not identify much with the first century Jews and uh, their customs, but we can definitely relate to the people of Corinth, to who this book of the Bible is written. Now, when you read about the Corinthians, there are three things that these people idolized. Wisdom, comfort, and their romantic desires. And everyone today is guilty of these same idols, even the Christians. Sure, they might not pursue, pursue wisdom and comfort and sexual desire like the culture tells them to, but if you go to a Christian bookstore, you can see what sells. I mean, you'll have shelf after shelf after shelf of books on how to find a spouse, how to fix your spouse, how to get the intimacy you desire from your spouse. Or if you find a book on singleness, it is worded in a way that it's like you've just been diagnosed with cancer and you have no hope. You can go into a Christian bookstore and find tons of books on the existence of God or proof for God or books on why the Bible is reliable, and all these other, like, wisdom, good-to-know things, but books that talk about what Jesus and the Bible tell us to do aren't exactly filling the shelves either. You'll find books on Christian living, but most of these books on Christian living are more about how to have your home feel more safe, more secure, more comfy. Christian family books on whoever loves their family more than me is unfit for my kingdom aren't exactly flying off the shelf. See, we take the same three things, but we just sprinkle a little Jesus on them and call it Christian. Being in campus ministry, I really see it with the Christian kids. Now, don't get me wrong, the Christian kids do look different from the non-Christian kids on campus. But they're chasing the same things. The Christian kid is so overwhelmed by who am I going to marry and uh, Bible knowledge, but then when someone asks them if they're a Christian on campus, they crumble under the pressure of saying yes. It's their romantic desire, it's their comfort and wisdom. This is where the Corinthians were at, and this is where we'll read this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chose the things that are not, so that we can't boast of earning or making our own Savior. This is the God that came down. And it was mind-boggling to the first century, and it's still mind-boggling to the 21st. Jesus has come to be our King, our Savior, and Messiah. He's our Messiah, and he's the chosen one that God promised to the people ever since Adam and Eve left the garden. But Jesus also wasn't plan B. 
Uh, he's been the way, the truth, and the life since the moment God said, let there be light. And yet, this chosen Messiah is a homeless drifter. And we have to follow that? Jesus is our Savior. He's the rescuer our hearts have desperately been longing for. Thoughts that consume our minds during the week are, isn't there a doctor who can heal me? Isn't there a counselor that can make me feel whole again? Isn't there a person out there that will make me feel fully known and fully loved? Isn't there a rescuer to set the suffering free? Yes. And he's come and suffered physically. He's suffered emotionally. He came and was lonely and isolated. He came and suffered under injustice. See, Christmas is the greatest message for the person longing for saving because their Savior came. And he's not going to overlook them because they're hurting, or they're heavy laden, or they're an outsider, or they're powerless. Lastly, he's the king. The king ushering in the coming kingdom. Now, in doing some research, I discovered that our country has been at war 222 of the last 239 years. Could you imagine a king who comes and preaches peace, and we no longer have to send our men and women into battle? No more widows from war. No more phone calls to parents from war. Or consider the corruption we've seen. Apart from policies, you can look at the headlines from Washington, D.C., and they're filled with scandals. Our country's leaders having affairs on their spouses, taking bribes, hiring prostitutes, murders disguised as suicides, lawmakers watching child pornography, politicians not following through on their promises, or they implement promises, but they do it in such a way it suffocates citizens and they give themselves a loophole out of. You see that they will invest in banquets and outings rather than the impoverished rural and urban communities. They make laws legalizing the slaughter of unborn by the hundreds of thousands, and they've historically made laws criminalizing and discriminating against image-bearing image people that Jesus Christ came to save. Now, God has extended so much grace to this kingdom we can worship publicly and openly. We have freedoms that the other world or the other places in the world don't enjoy, but we cannot get our kingdoms confused on this. The king of this kingdom we belong to will do away with all of this war and corruption. No longer will corrupt, greedy, unfaithful kings be in control. Jesus is the king that will establish an everlasting kingdom of love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are going to abound forever and ever. The true king has told us to steward this hard and thorny ground and has promised to one day come and turn what is a dry and cracked world into a thriving, flourishing world. And yet, he's born in a manger, not a castle. He's a carpenter's son. Not a son of a warrior, a leader, or a scholar. He comes from an unrespected community. He's tortured and pierced by other kings. His crown is thorns, not gold and jewels. He was a victim of the very kings he came to overthrow. And then this king says to his subjects, come and follow me. Jesus' genealogy 
his life, his ministry, all goes against everything we know as a king. And as I've mentioned, the first century couldn't put their finger on it, neither can the 21st. He's a king, and he's a servant. He's more holy than the religious people can understand, and he's more giving than any humanitarian can understand. He's more strict on the law than a conservative can bear. He's more concerned about love and justice than a progressive can bear. He's come, he's emptied himself, and the only question remains is if you will embrace the real Jesus. The Jesus who has a crown, but he also has scars. Now, a woman named Lucy Shaw wrote this poem called Mary's Song. And as we begin to wrap up this morning, I want this imagery that she has from this poem to linger in your hearts. Uh, it's about an unexpected, expected king. A king who created all things and then comes to die. A king who's powerful like a lion and gentle like a lamb. This is where we dive in to Lucy Shaw's poem, Mary's Song. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath, so slight it seems, no breath at all. Once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed, who overflowed all skies, all years. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. The Savior is come. He was torn to see us mended. He dined with the people you despised, and he rebuked the people you honor. It was shocking to the first century, and it's shocking today. But just because it's shocking, or just because it doesn't fit the ideal, just because it's mocked by others, just because you've heard the story a thousand times, doesn't mean we can ignore it. We are to respond in submitting to the true and good king, not our preferred one. We can't pick and choose which parts of Jesus we're going to keep and which we're going to avoid, just like the Jews couldn't pick which parts of the genealogy they were going to keep and which that they were going to ignore. We need to be renewed like Peter, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Savior and the King. Help us in our unbelief when we don't trust all of Jesus, only parts of him. Lord, we believe that your son Jesus really came to save us. Help us to see the real Jesus, not our imaginary one. Christmas is the time to adjust our thinking and what we dwell on. It's a time to reflect on the birth of King Jesus. It's a time to reflect on our need for a Savior. And may we take this time not to assume we know all about Jesus, but instead humble ourselves and behold Jesus, and ask God to help us comprehend him. Here's the final quote that we'll end on, and we'll pray. 
We were made to be with God, but we wanted to be like God, so we fell from God. God wanted to be with us, so God became like us, so we could be raised to him. Merry Christmas. Lord Jesus, would we see you? Would we not see our preferred ideal you? May we not see a Jesus who is soft on justice? Will we not see a Jesus who's soft on love? Would we not see a Jesus who agrees with us on everything we agree with and disagrees with us on everything we disagree with? But Lord, may we see the real Jesus. The Jesus who wears a crown but was born in a barn. The Jesus who is the king of all kings and who created the entire world and then came and died by the world. The Jesus who has come to make things right and not lose a single one of his children in the process. Jesus, would we see the real you? Would you open our hearts to seeing you this Christmas season? Would your birth be miraculous to us in a new and fresh way that you came to love us, to die for us, to redeem us, and restore us? It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things, and it's in the power of the Holy Spirit we trust these things to come to fruition. Amen.